Well, with all the constant onslaught of tyranny from every point conceivable, from heads of state to principals at schools, from CEOs to local store and restaurant owners. I don't know if you've faced any tyranny there. I have. It's shocking. (laughs) I have to pinch myself. Bullying is in and civility is out. Have you noticed? The bullies are really coming out of the woodwork. They're everywhere but God. Two of the most powerful and awe-inspiring words, but God. They bring hope and courage. The heart-constricting topic of fear was covered in the last couple of weeks. But this morning, I, I want to bring a message of hope in the face of manifest tyranny and show you that with God, we can stand. We can be secure, we can be steady, and we can be faithful with courage in the face of tyranny. We just sang praising his faithfulness of old. I love the Old Testament. The Old Testament is just filled with narrative. And that narrative is there for a purpose because when we read narrative, we identify with somebody in the narrative. They're stories. It just so happens that all these stories are true, right? I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 3 for our text this morning. And before we get started, just want to ask God's blessing upon this. We're going to talk about courage in the face of tyranny. Gracious Father, as we do face more and more bullies, Lord, people that just uh, believe they have the authority to enforce their ways upon others, no matter what those ways are, and we could list a whole bunch of them. But Father, you know, and Father... You also know that our frames, we're weak, we're but dust. And Father, we need your strength in our inner persons to be able to stand up in a respectful way and say, no, no. Father, help us. And let us take from this wonderful story, which is true, about three men who had to do just that. Let us learn these things today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we were singing, I was thinking, (laughs) my mind kind of went off for a little bit, and I was thinking about what it must be like for the angels to watch our worship service and for God to watch our worship service. Because as we're singing some of these songs, I know that they're penetrating into people's hearts. And these songs are not chosen happenstance like, Tracy doesn't think, I need to pick three songs. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. She just doesn't work like that at all. So she looks at my sermon, actually, beforehand, and asks what I'm going to be preaching on. And then she chooses songs that are appropriate to that. So maybe it was just me, having prepared this whole week for you, that these songs were very appropriate, Tracy, as always. But they're really ministering to my heart. And so that's what got me thinking. Because as they're ministering to my heart then, I'm being strengthened in my inner person, and then I'm bringing worship back to God. 
And this is a worship service, right? We come to worship him. But that doesn't mean that it's not reciprocal in the sense that he strengthens our hearts that we might worship him at a deeper level. So I pray that that is uh, your experience today, each and every one of you individually. Uh, God, the Spirit of God works in your heart, and our hearts are not like we're not all level. We're all at different places, and thank God that God is sovereign and almighty because he meets us right where we are. I'd like to read as we look at courage in the face of tyranny, uh, the first 12 verses of Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and it's with six cubits. And he set it up on a plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. And then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and counselors and treasurers, judges and the magistrates and all the rulers of the province were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately, that very hour, be cast into the midst of a furnace blazing with fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, Psaltery, bagpipes, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. And for this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and they brought charges against the Jews. And they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. And so we have a picture of a tyrant here. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, he's a king. Mentioned so many times, it's just not even funny. 
Fallen human nature is corrupt, and as the saying goes, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what's tacked onto that quote that we don't often hear is that great men are almost always bad men. Great men are almost always bad men. There must always be checks that keep men accountable above and beyond their own account of themselves. The divinely inspired Word of God does just that. It's a check so needed to govern the hearts of men. And when it's abandoned or ignored, tyrants rise up and they become their own gods. And they bring so much suffering in their vain attempt to rule without God. Now I want to say this very clearly so that you hear me. The righteous suffer with the wicked. When tyrants rise up, the righteous suffer with the wicked. Now, just a side note, the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, states that Nebuchadnezzar built the statue in the 18th year of his reign, which would have been 16 years after Daniel's interpretation of the king's dream in chapter 2. Look over to chapter 2 very quickly with me, and you'll see something very interesting beginning in verse 31. O king, this is Daniel interpreting the dream, uh, which Chaldeans incidentally couldn't. O king, you were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, a statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine or pure gold, and its breast and its arms silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, silver, and gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that was struck, the statue, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That was a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, couldn't figure it out, tried to get all the wise men and soothsayers to come and tell him what the dream meant, and only one man was found that could interpret the dream. My hero, Daniel. I love Daniel. Three regimes of pagan kings, and he remained steadfast throughout three regimes, all the way through the Babylonian captivity. And so 16 years after Daniel interprets that, Nebuchadnezzar comes up with a great idea. I'm going to raise up a statue like that. And in all that time, none of those prophecies in that, in that uh, dream had come true, right? There, there were no bronze kingdom and no iron kingdom and certainly no sign of a magnificent flying stone that broke it all apart. The 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign also allows for the statue to have been built around the time of Nebuchadnezzar's conquering Jerusalem in 586 B.C., which only... 
bolstered him stronger yet. He may have considered such a routine or a routing of the Jewish capital to, to, to show him that even the God of the Jews, Yahweh, was not strong enough for his power. You do realize over in chapter 2, verse 36, it says, uh, Daniel says, this is a dream, now we'll tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. Now get this last point here. You are the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) Words to his ears. I, Nebuchadnezzar, am the head of gold. And so quite possibly he thought that having sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and carried the remnant of Jews back to Babylon for captivity, that he was beyond any other governing authority, including God. So he built this tribute to himself as supreme ruler, not to ever be overthrown by other kingdoms as a God of heaven had revealed to Daniel, which was complete rebellion against the God of heaven who revealed that dream to him, because twice in that statement that I just read to you from chapter 2, it says God gave that power to him. God gave him that kingdom. He left that part out. And this is what the courageous young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were up against. Talk about a tyrant. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was flexing his muscle. So I want to give you just a couple characteristics of a tyrant. Verses 1 through 3, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, exalted the view of himself. Huge ego. Nebuchadnezzar is identified as Nebuchadnezzar the king nine times. Nine times in Daniel. In this chapter alone, it's repeated seven times. The other two times are found in chapter four. Seven times. The king, the king, the king. This is the mark of a tyrant. Exalted view of himself. Secondly, he has an exalted view of his position. He enacted an image, represented himself, and it was approximately 90 feet tall. That's nine stories, people. Nine stories tall and nine feet wide. Now, that was a mighty slim, tall statue. The dimensions imply either that the statue did not possess the normal human proportions or that it stood on a large pedestal and that the pedestal's height was calculated into the 90-foot measurement. We don't know. Thirdly, his overreach of power affected his ability to reason. This often happens with men who think they have absolute power and become their own gods. The king, no doubt, got this idea for the statue from the dream, as I mentioned. And there is, however, a marked difference between this image and the one of the dream. In the dream, only the head was made of gold, representing Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon. But this statue was all of gold. 
It couldn't have been pure gold. It was overlaid with gold, but it was still gold. And the all-gold image shows the king's rebellion against God. The gold statue is pure self-exaltation. That's all it was. <laughs> I never forget watching the overthrow in Tirana of the Albanian despot there. They threw a rope over the statue he had of himself in the town square. I've been to Tirana, you know, right where that took place. And, and they dragged it down and broke it in pieces. You see, the head was the only part that was gold, and that represented the Babylonian captivity from 605 B.C. to 536 B.C. But then after that came the silver, which was the Medo-Persia kingdom, 536 to 331 B.C. That statue kind of laid out the whole time frame and reigning governments for the rest of time. Brass, or bronze, represented Greece, the Greek government, 331 to 63 B.C. And, of course, iron was Rome, which began in 63 B.C. Now, we really don't have an end date for Rome because at the end of days, there's a Roman-revived empire that comes into play, and that is descriptive of the clay and iron feet. And, of course, the stone cut without hands is Jesus Christ who comes and destroys it all and sets up his kingdom, the millennial kingdom. So we've got a political thing going on here big time, but what I want you to hear is this tyrant and see what this tyrant acts like. So this, it affected his ability to reason because the gold statue merely was self-exaltation. And, and fourthly, Tyrants use intimidation for compliance. Does that sound familiar? Am I getting an echo? They use intimidation for compliance. So do bullies. You know the best way to deal with a bully that's pushing you around is smack them right square in the face. Did I say that? I did say that. It is. It is. You stand up to bullying, and the bullies usually topple. And they look for another time to come out again. In 3.6, we provide the contrast to compliance with consequences. Look at 3.6. It says, but whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately, I mean, this very hour, the very time that they're discovered, they will be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There's no room for appeal, no room for exception. You either comply or you face the draconian consequences. And all tyrants use intimidation to get people to comply with their wishes, which are often translated into law. Law. Who follows tyrants and why? Well, the majority of rulers follow tyrants, or so it would seem. When a tyrant lays down the law, they typically have majority compliance, which is often due to the consequences of noncompliance. And there aren't many men standing in a room that want to go against a tyrant. 
And because the majority seem to follow, that compliance is used then to further induce those who linger into submission. The whole government's doing it. Come on. You know better than they? All of them. Really? Majority follow tyrants. The rulers comply both great and small. Satraps was a leader in each of the various provinces in the empire. The term actually means protectors of the realm. Prefects and governors are used together to show equal authority, and a prefect was a superintendent or a supervisor, often not but exclusively related to the military. So you've got the military involved here too. In Daniel 2.48, Daniel's referred to by this very same title and was to be a supervisor over all the wise men of the realm. Daniel was chief over all the Chaldeans and the wise men. Why? Because he just kept on soaring above all the riffraff. They couldn't do diddly. Daniel comes and interprets the dreams by the power of God. Governments... Governors ruled over subdivisions and prefects are assigned to regions. Counselors and judges, now you've got the judicial involved here. These were the chief arbitrators in the realm, deciding between disputing parties. And treasurers, here's the monetary, the Wall Street people, simply meaning the masters of the treasury. And magistrates, these were the guardians of the law and those who were uh, would give just sentences for infractions of the law. So you got judges, lawyers, monetary people, the financial community, the judicial system, and all the rulers of the provinces, merely a designate to include all lower levels of government. Chief of police, they complied. Principals of school, they complied. All the rulers. All the people in leadership complied. And if that's not enough, it goes on to say, peoples, nations, and men of every language. Now this is the display that King Nebuchadnezzar's prowess was amazing, conquering so many nations with a lot of diversity, but they were all called into compliance. You see, it's always been the goal, world domination, global domination, and I can't, I'm going to tell you a secret. It's not men that are doing this. It's men who are carrying out the plan. There's somebody behind the plan. And we're told in 1 John that the whole world lies in his hand. He's just trying to make it evident to everybody. This then is a, another tool for further compliance. Those in positions of authority desire to retain their positions so they comply. But again, such compliance is used to show the hesitant that they should comply. Why are you hesitating? The reasoning might follow, if, if all leaders of the realm are complying, do you think you know better than the leaders? Picture commercials with the most popular and well-known satraps and prefects showing their great excitement to comply. Seen any of those lately? Even, even cultural heroes were complying. The lesser rule problem, we've got 
lesser rulers filled with jealousy and strife. In verses 8 through 12, you see that the Chaldeans came against the Jews. There's ethnocentricity. That's a big word for saying, I'm number one. My group is the group. Okay? The Italians did it for a long time. We were called Romans. Okay? The Greeks did it for a long time, too. They were before us, but we took them. Okay? I want to tell you something. Ethnocentricity is endemic. It's in every single culture that there is. What we're seeing here with tribalism coming out and everybody saying, I'm the best, is nothing new at all. And honestly, we had a pretty good run going against it for quite a while here in the United States. But something happened about 10, 15 years ago. And we lost our bearings again. Now we all think we're all against each other. We're not. Hey, just two, three weeks ago, our gold medal winner from the east side of St. Paul, a little Hmong girl, a gymnast, they had a parade. The entire east side turned out for that parade. Where's the racism at, man? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Now, I know there are racists, and they're haters, and they're horrible people, but this whole society is not racist. And don't you believe it for one minute. That's a lie. It's, it's generated to keep us at odds with each other. Ethnos, ethnocentricity and anti-Semitism fueled a grab for power. The text tells us that certain Chaldeans went before Nebuchadnezzar, the king, and used his own self-exalting mandate to accuse the Jews. It was motivated by racism, Chaldeans versus Jews. And the king had already exalted these foreigners, these Jews, to high positions in the government. In fact, Daniel was over the Chaldeans. Even though Daniel's influence had once saved their lives. Look over at 2.24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, the Chaldeans, because they couldn't interpret the dream. And Daniel is raised up, and he goes to Arioch, the executioner, and he says, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. He had their back. didn't matter. They remained jealous for their high position before the king. Politics comes into this too. You, O king, have made a decree. The Chaldeans reminded the king it was his very command that was being violated, thereby made the three men's accusations personally against the king and his authority. Note also in verses 12 that they reminded the king it was he who had appointed these guys to their prominent positions. And now they were acting with impertinence to this command. How dare they? And religion comes into it too, not just politics. The Chaldeans clearly stated that the three men did not serve the king's gods, personal, or worship the image that he had set up, personal. They're taking a shot at the Jews' religion as being contrary to the king. And his religion. 
And if the time frame is correct, they, they, they were so savvy. They're feeding right into this guy's ego that he had just taken down the temple of Yahweh, the Almighty God, the Jews' God. Therefore, the three Jews' defiance would be a reassertion of that God that Nebuchadnezzar had just struck down. So that's a picture of a tyrant and all of his little followers underneath him, the smaller tyrants. Secondly, there's the challenge of civil disobedience. Let me read to you just the following verses, 13 through 18. Then, after it was told the king that these three would not worship his statue. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, and so forth, you will bow down to the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a fire, a blazing furnace, and whatever, uh, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands. What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego listened to him. And they said, we don't need to be careful to give you an answer concerning this matter. All they're saying is they, they don't have to really think a lot about this. It's not a complex issue for them. 17. If it be so, we would say in today's vac uh, vernacular, if God wills. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. Basically, we're not complying. And he will deliver us out of your hand. O king. <laughs> They're respectful. Just like Daniel was always respectful. But, even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, there it is again, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now we've seen what the three young men were up against as Nebuchadnezzar the king flexed his tyrannical power. Now we're going to witness how these three men face that challenge head on. Note that everyone was called to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they all stood before it, just as Nebuchadnezzar had stood before the statue in his dreams. And make no mistake about it, this was indeed a time to worship. If you write in your Bible, that word worship is used at least ten times in this little chapter, beginning in verse 5, in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 10, in verse 11, and verse 12, then 14, twice in verse 15, and once in verse 18. This was about worship. 
Therefore, the three men were not even close to buckling. Nebuchadnezzar was establishing solidarity not only politically, having all of those countries represented by those peoples and nations and languages, but also religion. And he was a focal point of both the supreme king and the God to be worshipped. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Facing the authorities' rage and anger, a tyrant reacts emotionally to disobedience because it's an affront to who they perceive themselves to be, right? Rage and anger showed a degree to which a king had sunk in his self-adulation so that anyone who would dare to defy him would face his fury. In 3.19, it shows the extent to which he would go as he demanded the furnace would be heated seven times hotter. Seven times hotter, people, than it already was. He's furious. Secondly, a tyrant is incredulous when he perceives impertinence. I I love what he says. He says to them in verse 14, he gets the boys before him, or the men before him, and he says, is it true? Like, can you be kidding me? You're not going to do this? (laughs) I'm the king. The tyrant sings his own praises. The king reminded them that the statue of gold was what he had set up in verse 14. Proverbs 27.2 says, Let another man's lips praise you and not your own. A stranger and not your own lips. Well, not only does he react in, in incredulous rage and fury, but he gives him a second chance. In verse 15 and 16, I love it. He says, now if you're ready. He thought he had cowered them. Now if you're ready. It's always the same in history. That when a saint stands firm in the face of martyrdom, those who would judge them with death are incredulous, and they make offers to deliver them from certain death if they'd only just recant or retract or withdraw their position. Uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, just read it. It's everywhere present. So it was throughout the testimonies in the Book of the Martyrs. And so it is here. Nebuchadnezzar is incredulous. Nebuchadnezzar attempts to reason with them. And the king honestly warned them that they, if they didn't relent, what would happen to them? All cajoling them to comply. The king reveals his real attitude motivating this severity in verse 15. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Wow. People, there's a day coming. I don't know if we're going to experience it, but there's a day coming where persecution, and we're going to face stuff like this. The godly will suffer persecution. Isn't that what Pilate said to the Lord in John 19.10? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And I think 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they reasoned these things out and they said, listen, we're not going to comply. We're not bowing down to that statue. Our God is able to deliver us. And he will. Out of your hand. But even if he doesn't, we're still not bowing down. They understood. Thomas Cranmer, 1489 to 1556 under Bloody Mary, was a man who is known to have recanted his recantation. <laughs> the night before he was to be burned at the stake, he recanted, stating that the Pope is the true head of the church. But then in the morning when they took him out before everybody to make a public testimony of that fact, he recanted from his recantation, clearly separating himself from the Roman church, declaring that the Pope is not the head of Christ's church. And so they took him to burn him at the stake, and the very first thing he did is he stuck forth his hand into the fire that had written his recanting the evening before. And he said, this hand hath offended. And then the rest of his body was burned at the stake. John Frith, 1503 to 1533, martyred at 30 years old, he is offered freedom if he would but say he believed in purgatory and transubstantiation. Those are, that's the Eucharist, that the very piece of bread contains the body of Jesus Christ and the blood in communion is actual, the literal blood. That's transubstantiation. It's taught by the Roman Catholic Church. It's false. It is not true. It's just not true. And purgatory, of course, is not true either. It's given unto men once to die, and after this, a judgment. Neither teaching can be verified in Scripture, and that was his answer, and he was burned at the stake. <laughs> Someday, maybe. When you do read the box, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, you will also be encouraged greatly to see the incredible grace infused into those men and women and children that died for Christ's name. I'm sure they're like John Newton who said, I amaze, I'm amazed at myself. <laughs> they probably couldn't believe how bold they were being as they went to die. You see, but they, they put their foot in the water, right? You have to put your foot in the water before it parts. But it really helps if you start preparing your heart and your mind now is he your all in all? Do you really believe that he is your Lord? You can, you're the only one that can answer that question. Now, the, the three men were respectful, weren't they? But they were firm with the king. We're not careful to answer, O king. But they were resolved in their conviction. Commitment then and now, consider how easy it would have been for the three men to compromise the challenge, right? The king must really esteem us because he, he called us out of all the rest. He called us, us three there, and he gave us a second chance. Maybe we ought to do it. Or maybe they thought bowing to the statue could easily be thought of as just submitting to the representation of the government. It's not really religious. These are excuses that could come to their minds. We could do it 
this once and then never again. That's the mind game we play with our personal sins, isn't it? Just, just this once. Better to live and fight another day. All these things. These are the temptations that we face. And God's grace is able to overcome and strengthen us. The three were now alone, and God, as so often does, he prepared them for this. When they were together with Daniel, do you remember? Daniel led them when they stood against drinking that wine and eating that food of the Babylonians. He was out in front of them, courageous as a lion. And they followed him, and they saw God undertake for them. Now they're on their own. People, you may not be able to have pastor with you or an elder or even the fellowship with you. You may be all alone when you have to say, no, I will not. Or yes, I do. (laughs) Whatever it's going to be. I just want to tell you, the strength is there. If you call upon him, the strength is there. The answer to the king was without compromise. It was not confusing, and it wasn't looking at the situation as being really complex. Their answer was unambiguous and clear. Do you think such commitment is still necessary today? Or do you think it's easier today? Is it still necessary to stand alone for Christ and for the truth? What does the Bible say about this? Matthew 10 tells us, Therefore, who confesses me before men... Him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. He says again, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. We need to be ready to confess Christ with our mouth and believe in our heart. Yes, it's true, but confess with our mouths. You know, know, some are on the line. We have people right here in our congregation that are having to stand right now at the potential of losing their jobs because they do not want to comply. Right now, I mean here, right? Right? Pray for those brothers and sisters that are part of our fellowship. I'm not going to give names. But they're having to go against their employer's demands that they do something that they feel they have a conscience against doing it. We're called to conform already. In this culture, listen to me, we're already called to conform to tolerance towards sexual immorality and deviant behavior. It's the law of the land, people. We're forced not to be narrow in our views of truth, to consider just how many religions there are in the world and challenged by others who say, they can't all be wrong. (laughs) Yes, they certainly can. And they are. The Bible tells us to offer our bodies a living sacrifice. In Romans 6, it tells us to literally yield our members of our body to the Lord for righteousness and not for sin. How do you yield your members? Your members are your tongue, your eyes, your hands, your feet, your body, basically. Now, three men were able to stand 
strong in the face of death because they believed in a life to come that is better than the life that they lived. Oh, man. I don't know how far I'm going to get in this sermon today. I mean, I'm just so full. There's so much here. We're not even going to get to the good part. We need an eternal perspective more than we've ever needed it before, people. And America is absolutely horrible at providing us with all sorts of other options. Okay? I just want to sit and watch Netflix, man. Just leave me alone. You can call, what is it, Grubhub. I think Amazon even delivers hamburgers. You know, you don't have to leave your house. You can just kind of sit out the storm. Eating fast food that's provided and watching whatever it is that you like to watch. I don't think any of us in this congregation right here as I'm looking out on us, I don't think any of us are poor. Some of us have more than others here. (laughs) That's the way of the world, right? But none of us are in destitution here. And, And honestly, those provisions that God has provided for us to freely enjoy, he's given us all things to freely enjoy, they can become a great temptation to us to take our thoughts away from eternity. You know, it's like the old pastor he was getting on in years in the congregation said, we need to do something really great for our pastor. He's always been driving this old beat-up car. And we're going to get him. We're going to get him a really nice car. He's never had a new car in his life, and so they bought him this really nice new car. And they presented it to him, and they said, "Well, what do you think? What do you think?" And he said, "Well, he said I'm not looking near as forward to heaven as I was before I had this. Right? I mean, the things of this world—they're tempting. We're giving them freely to enjoy." But don't forget Psalm 68. We have been blessed in order to be a blessing. Can I just put a plug in for the conference again? The reason we're doing this conference is just because of that, because we are so laid back in everything that we have and enjoy. When the world's going to hell around us, I want to sound the bell that there's something we can do to be engaged with others who don't have the blessings that we have in this nation. And that is reaching out and planting churches in other parts of the world. Please be involved in that. Take that opportunity. Well, you know what? I'm going to save the last point, which is the best point, for next week. I have to, unless you guys brought your lunch, it's 12 o'clock. Let me do it real quick. Let me do it. I'll go quick. This pains me. Then Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19, was filled with wrath and facial expression was altered toward... Can you imagine how angry he was? I mean, I can't imagine that face that he must think of a meme, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he was really angry with them. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was usually heated. He commanded that certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Like, what what are they going to do? Run away if they weren't tied up? 
He's not thinking right, right? And he wasn't thinking right by kicking the fire up seven times hotter because it would have been better to bring it down seven times lower so that they suffered more. You throw somebody into a fire like that, they're going to go poof. Right? They're gone. Then these men, then these men were tied up in their, in their trousers and their coats and their caps and all their other clothes. And you had to believe that they were royal trappings, right? Because they were public officials. And they were cast into the midst of the fire, the blazing fire. And for this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up, and then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded, and he stood up in haste, and he said to his high officials, was it not three men that we cast into the fire? And they replied to the king, certainly, O king, <laughs> anything you say, yep, 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 right? And he said, look, I see four men loose, and they're walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace, a blazing fire, and he responded, and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. And all the leaders saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged. Get this, nor was the smell of fire even upon them. Our God is an awesome God. He is able to deliver you from anything that you're facing. Anything. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, here he is again, king, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be torn limb from limb, and their homes reduced to rubbish heap, inasmuch he didn't change a whit. This guy is intractable. Even though those are kind of nice-sounding words that he said about the God of these three, he's still the king. And then... The king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the promise of Babylon. Folks, all that to just say that God is able to meet you. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or even think. Do you believe that? You see, if you don't believe that, you're missing out as believers. And the thing is, is that you don't have to wait until you're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace to begin to believe that. You can believe that right now 
in your personal relationships with one another. In those people that you have a hard time forgiving. In whatever it is that you're confronted with at work. We're not having enough this month. Whatever it is you're facing, you can trust him. He is trustworthy. He loves you so much that he died for you. You think he's not going to help you in your time of need? But if you continue to not trust him and keep on trying to get these things done on your own, you're going to wear out. And you're going to end up trusting him in the end anyways because you'll run out of energy and then he'll just swoop you up again. So every day you have an opportunity to trust him. I love being a pastor. I'm just talking to your souls. This is the best job ever. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for showing us through Old Testament examples that you are so trustworthy, you are so able, that even the most horrendous situation you can deliver. And you deliver in such a way that it's beyond misunderstanding that you delivered. Their ropes were burned so that they walked around freely and yet there wasn't a hair singed on their heads and their garments didn't even smell of fire. And yet those who threw them into the fire were incinerated instantly. Oh God, forgive our unbelief and strengthen us and make us courageous people for the days ahead and for the days right now. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.